If you've been listening to our show for more than one episode, then you probably know about my love for animals. What I don't often talk about is the difficulty of meeting all their nutritional needs. Trust me, not all dog food is created equal, but we're about to solve that problem for you. It's called Nom Nom. In Nom Nom, you can actually see proteins and vegetables like beef, chicken, pork, peas, carrots, kale, and more. And ordering it is the easiest way to take the guesswork out of feeding your dog the best. Nom Nom meals are pre-portioned for your dog's exact caloric needs. Isn't it time to feel good about the food you're feeding your dog? Order Nom Nom today. Go to trynom.com slash coffee and cases and get 50% off your first order plus free shipping. Plus, Nom Nom comes with a money back guarantee. That means if your dog doesn't love fresh, delicious meals, Nom Nom will refund your first order. No fillers, no nonsense, just Nom Nom. When thinking about American youth culture in the 1960s, several things come to mind, many of which we've discussed before on this show. Anti-war protests, countercultural rebellion against sexual and social norms. Many were skeptical of authority and felt deeply for the underprivileged. It was a time of personal freedoms. As a result, based on an article for the BBC by Benjamin Ram, published on June 15, 2017, quote, For Karen Stoller, author of the book Runaways, 1967 was the crisis year when panic gripped the media. Children who once played on the streets now drifted into areas associated with the counterculture, such as New York City's East Village, or San Francisco's Haight-Ashbury District during the 67 Summer of Love, end quote. Further in the article, Ram explains, quote, Between 1967 and 1971, over 500,000 people in the United States left home to move into experimental communities, end quote. Many of those people were teens wanting to assert those personal freedoms. So when a young 16-year-old girl disappeared in September 1971 from Portland, Maine, her disappearance was seen as one of many that did not get the attention it deserved. Many saw her as just another one of the 500,000, but she wasn't. Instead, she is currently one of the oldest cold cases in Maine's history. This is the case of Kathy Moulton. Welcome to Coffee and Cases, where we like our coffee hot and our cases cold. My name is Allison Williams. And my name is Maggie Dameron. We will be telling stories each week in the hopes that someone out there with any information concerning the cases will take those tips to law enforcement so justice and closure can be brought to these families. 
With each case, we encourage you to continue in the conversation on our Facebook page, Coffee and Cases Podcast, because, as we all know, conversation helps to keep the missing person in the public consciousness, helping keep their memories alive. So sit back, sip your coffee, and listen to what's brewing this week. Okay, Maggie, for this week's case, I relied on a handful of articles from the Portland Press, Herald, and Portland Monthly, because that's all there was on the case. You know, because this, like a lot of the cases we've covered, this is one of those where there has been very little written about it in terms of the daily media. However, luckily, Mm -hmm. a Portland detective who was tasked with investigating Kathy Moulton's case when it was reopened in 1995, a man named Kevin Cady composed a book about the case, which provided the majority of the information that I'm going to be discussing with you this week. So I'm going to give a little plug for that book if you are interested in reading (laughs) even more details about the case. I would encourage you to go to Amazon and download or purchase his book. It is entitled Kathy Moulton, Missing and Endangered. And actually, if you have Kindle Unlimited, it is included for free, so even better. Hmm. But I am completely indebted to Kevin Cady for the information that he shared so that we can share Kathy's story with others. So, Kathy Moulton was born on June 28th, 1955. She was the oldest of three daughters born to Claire and Lyman, who sometimes went by Roy Moulton. Her mom, Claire, was an emergency room nurse before making the decision to stay home and care for Kathy, Kimberly, and Pamela. Her father, Lyman, was the owner of a used car lot that he had inherited from his parents, so second-generation car lot, and the family lived in Portland, Maine, which is a harbor city. It's one of the most populated cities in Maine, It obviously because it's a port, Portland, has active fishing and commercial shipping industries. It's this beautiful town. And it has a rich history in the arts and in architecture. I have never put together in my life, Portland was named that, I'm assuming because it was a port. Yeah. I had never connected that in my life. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) So it was in Portland that the Moltons raised their three daughters. And they all, including Kathy, thrived. Kathy, in particular loved sewing and making her own clothing. I wish I had that skill. I do not. I know. Yeah. I tried to learn. My grandma gave me a sewing machine, but I couldn't figure out how to thread the bobbin. And when she showed me, she did it so quickly and she was so good at it. She Mm -hmm. was like, do you understand? I was like, yeah. And then when I tried (laughs) to do it again, I was like, I don't even know what the bobbin is, but okay. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I've started working with an embroidery machine, but I still couldn't, you know, design and make my own clothes. I can plug in a USB right. and tell it what color I want it to stitch. I get yeah. that part. <laughs> um, so yeah, she was very talented with making her own clothes. She babysat for some of the families in her neighborhood so she could save up money. And more than that though. 
she was the kind of daughter who would come home every day to sit down for long talks with her mom about everything that was going on in her life. And I just think she honestly so kind of reminds me of your little sleuth hound a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Except for the skill with sewing, drawing and computers. Yes. So different <laughs> skills. But yeah, she's the kind who will just sit down and have long talks. Kathy was also the kind of person who visited elderly neighbors just to see how they were doing. Oh, I know. And she was the kind of responsible teen who, no matter what other obligations she felt she had, she would be home at six o'clock for dinner with her family each night. Wow. I know. Mom Claire told Portland Monthly of Kathy that she, quote, felt if you were nice to other people, they would be nice to you, end quote. And let me just say, I wish everybody had that. So she lives by the golden rule. Yes, I wish everybody. Me too. Had that same mentality. Our world would be a better place. Yeah, amen to that. When our case takes place in 1971, I'm going to actually backtrack nearly three months before the disappearance. It was June 18th, 1971. School had just ended for the girls, and their father, Lyman, had closed the car dealership two days earlier on June 16th with plans to reopen in September because he and his family were going to clamber into his new 1971 Cadillac DeVille, so dad, mom, and three girls, for a cross-country trip that would take them all the way from Maine to California and back. Let me just say, that's like a dream vacation for me, mm -hmm. just to travel across country. I don't know that I would want to do it in a car. Maybe if I had like a nice motorhome that I could rent or something. <laughs> right. But still... Yeah, I would think it would be so expensive today, though. Oh, I'm Just sure. Just gas alone. That would be crazy. Mm -hmm. But yeah. it, was, it was a trip that they completed, stopping at so many new places along the way. And, you know, really getting to see the country. It was also a trip that kept them away from home for a total of 81 days. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That is a long vacation. Only 10 days into the family road trip, Kathy turned 16 on June 28th. And I know it may be a, a different birthday than normal since she couldn't invite friends over, but the Moulton family made sure to make her birthday special. By this point, they had made their way to Williamsburg, Virginia, where they allowed Kathy to pick her birthday dinner, and she chose pizza and, for dessert, a raspberry yeah. coconut layer cake. Mm. I know. That sounds so delicious to me. And it could be because I'm trying to eat healthier and just any sugar sounds really good right now, but I feel like this is a girl after my own heart. Yeah, I just told Allison I ate two ice cream cones today, and that's the <laughs> raspberry coconut layer cake sounds like it could be a pretty good bedtime snack. As for a birthday present, Kathy chose that a few days later on July 14th. By then, they were in Del Rio, Texas, so they're making some good time here. 
Yeah, they are. Yeah. So they were in Del Rio, Texas, and Kathy saw this brown and tan reversible leather handbag. And as soon as she saw it, she fell in love. So her parents purchased it for her. This is her 16th birthday. This is the gift that she wants. And from that moment, she carried it everywhere for the rest of the trip and every like every day, every place when they returned home, which by the way, they returned home only two days before school began. And Kathy started her junior year at Deering High School. And when the Moltons returned home on September 6th, 1971, their neighbors were so happy to see the sweet family again that they threw them a neighborhood feast. And basically that information gets us up to speed before the day when life changed for the Moulton family, September 24th, 1971. The day, September 24th, began normally with Kathy preparing her outfit for the YWCA dance that Friday night. I read that she loved swing dancing. Is the YWCA like the YMC or yeah, the YMCA? I think so. That's my understanding. Yes. (laughs) Well, I have learned so many new things in this episode already. (laughs) Portland, YWCA. So Kathy had actually been hemming her pant skirt outfit. To get it ready for the dance. And I hadn't heard of a pant skirt. But I mean, I could guess what it was based on what it sounds like. So I looked up and the patterns for one from the 70s, it kind of looked like pants, but the legs were so loose and flowy that when your legs are together, it kind of looks like a skirt. Interesting. Mm -hmm. But in order to finish it, For the dance that night, she needed to get some more thread as well as some pantyhose. Well, the research said nylons, but I call them pantyhose because hers had a rub in them. So (laughs) she had to go get some more. And when her mom, Claire, overheard, you know, that she needed to go to the store and that Lyman was going to drive Kathy to town, she actually asked Kathy to also purchase two tubes of toothpaste for her. And she gave her the money for that purchase and some money so that Kathy would have enough change for a bus ride home. So that way, you know, dad could drive her to town. She could get what she needed, kind of spend some time in town and then still make it home for dinner by six without dad having to go back out. What time was the dance? Um, I think it didn't start until like eight. Oh, okay. That's what I read. So, I mean, she had plenty of time. So Kathy's father dropped her off around 1.30-ish on Forest Avenue in downtown Portland, Maine. And Kathy made her way to the department store on Congress Street, called Porches, Mitchell, and Braun, which sounds very highfalutin to me. I don't know if it was, but it sounds it. And it was there that she was able to buy all the items that she needed. So even with browsing down a bunch of the aisles in the store, Kathy was still finished with plenty of time to spare. And we don't know what happened between 1.30 when... Her dad drops her off 
And the next interaction that we know of around 530, Hmm. which was also still in town. So I don't know if she, you know, ran into some friends and was talking. If, you know, I go to the grocery store and I'll need five things and it takes me an hour. So because I want to walk down every aisle and just make sure I'm not forgetting something or, you know, maybe Hmm. there's something on sale. And so I don't know if she was kind of doing the same thing. Or how she filled her time between that sighting and the next one. That is a pretty significant chunk of time, though. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we do know that Kathy did walk down the street to Starbird Music Store, which was fair- where her good friend Carol Starbird worked. That's a cool and last name. I know. It's an awesome last name. So Kathy and Carol talked for a little bit about how excited they were for the night's dance. And they made a promise to catch up later when they were there at the dance. And Carol stated that during this interaction, Kathy was in a really good mood. And this is despite the fact that she had actually spent too much of her money on <laughs> something. So I don't know if she bought more than thread and pantyhose or if she just bought some higher quality thread and pantyhose but she had spent too much of her money um and now she didn't have enough money for the bus fare home so she was gonna have to walk did you say how far from town they live like would that have been a really long walk they live about two miles from town and i did read that starboard music was nearly halfway home Okay, so she would make it probably right on time for six o'clock dinner if she had to walk home. Yeah, because this interaction was happening around 530. So Kathy didn't stay very long, you know, because she said to Carol, she said, well, I have to go ahead and go. I've got to head out if I'm going to make it in time for dinner. Mm -hmm. And because she only lived two miles away total and Starboard Music was nearly halfway home, she was going to make it in time if she left right then. And, you know, walked at a moderate pace. So she exited the store, walking in the direction of Clinton Street, which is the street where she lived. That was where her house was located. At her home, promptly at six, like always, her mother set the table and everyone sat down for dinner. But Kathy's seat sat empty. Her mom, Claire obviously knew immediately that something was wrong Mm. because if Kathy knew she were going to be late or if she were held up by something, then she would have found access to a phone and called, but no call had come. And we know now that she left starboard music with plenty of time to get home by six, even on foot. As time continued to pass with no sign from their eldest daughter Kathy's father, too, grew worried. They kind of went through the normal process that that I feel like a lot of parents go through in the cases that we talk about. So they called the home of Kathy's friends. None of them had seen Kathy. Kathy's father thought maybe there had been an accident and Kathy had been hurt. Mm. So they call area hospitals and clinics. There were no patients admitted under Kathy's name. So then her dad actually drove the route between the family home and the store, right? Because he says, well, surely I'm going to see her along the way. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe maybe something happened and she got sidetracked and she doesn't know what time it is. Something. So he follows this route that she would have taken to walk home. 
no sign of Kathy. Okay, so now they definitely know that this daughter who's home every day for dinner, something Mm -hmm. is wrong. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Knowing that this daughter, who is an extremely responsible girl, would not have left her family worrying about her safety Mm -hmm. and unable to logically explain why she hadn't returned home. They were only left with one option to help find their little girl, and that was to go to the Portland Police Department and file a missing persons report. Right, because they know I hope they took it and they weren't just like, oh, she probably ran away. Well, they didn't. And that's why I kind of gave that explanation at the beginning. The time period did the Moulton family no favors. Oh, right. Because, yeah, remember in the introduction when I was talking about, you know, that perceived level of teen rebellion during the Mm -hmm. time and how many teens actually did run away from home to join communes and different things like that. And that perception of American youth shaded everything even law enforcement's reaction to kathy's parents coming into the police station you know when their daughter had for all intents and purposes been missing mere hours you know i really think that i was born in the correct time period Mm -hmm. i don't think that my personality would have survived the 1960s and 70s (laughs) I think I would be way too anxious. Yeah. I don't think I would have made it. Right. I know. I know. And it makes me so sad when I was reading about this case to hear that, you know, her mom called the police first and was basically laughed at Aww. for calling because Kathy had only been gone a couple of hours. And then even, you know, they were basically like, well, she's going to come home. And if she doesn't, she probably ran away because she wanted to. And her, her, yeah, her dad then went to the station. He too was scoffed at and they were like, you know what? If she wants to come home, she'll come home. You have to wait 72 hours before filing a missing persons report. Yeah. So her parents went home, obviously dejected, still worried to death for their daughter because they know this is not like her. And she's 16, is that what you said? 16. Yeah, had just turned 16. And they're kind of taking the approach of like, well, if she comes home, it's because she wanted to. But Mm -hmm. if she doesn't come home, that's also because she wanted to. You're barely 16-year-old daughter. Yes. And so luckily, the Moultons did not take law enforcement's answer because when Kathy hadn't returned by the next morning, her father drove again to the station and demanded that someone take a missing person's report. And when it was obvious that he was not going to leave unless they did, a report was filed. Well, good for him. Yes. And Mr. Moulton also demanded that his daughter's image be sent to all major law enforcement offices in the area, you know, because he's thinking this, her picture needs to be sent out because if Mm -hmm. she's not in this town, she's got to be in one of the surrounding ones. Right. So let's get this out there. But I'm saddened to say that there was no real intensive follow-up investigation that's frustrating Mm -hmm. and even in terms of the media coverage and this is what i was saying at the beginning of kathy's disappearance there was only a brief mention 
in local papers, Portland Press Herald and the Maine Sunday Telegram at the so time. So I wonder Those how many other ones. kids. Oh. So then I wonder how many other kids were missing under real circumstances and not mm-hmm. just, oh, I'm joining a, you know, Commune. a yeah. religious group or whatever. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I know. There were lots. And the case was at a standstill because law enforcement didn't take it seriously. You know, and this was actually mm-hmm. a fact that new detectives who reopened the case years later did to the Moulton family publicly and vocally apologize for. I mean, which and is I, nice, but it's like too little too late, exactly, you know. Exactly, right. I'm sure the anger had to still be there. At least it would still be there for me. Mm-hmm. In the weeks that followed Kathy's disappearance, there wasn't much that her family was able to uncover. Because, like I said, law enforcement's not really doing anything. So, her family's trying to gather all the information that they can. Friends said that Kathy seemed interested when a classmate at school had mentioned a visit to Boston. So, there's, you know, her some of her classmates said, well, maybe she went to Boston because she seemed interested. Mm. I know. And there was one report of seeing Kathy get into a car, a blue Cadillac. But my question is, why would she go without access to any of her money? Because she didn't even have enough money to take the bus home. Yeah. And how many girls looked like Kathy? You know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. enough that they could be confused for her. Yeah, that's true. And she didn't have any of her clothing with her. I mean, I feel like if you're going to run off, you know, and you're going to go to Boston, because that sounds like a good plan, you'd at least want to have clothes and or money. Exactly. You would need at least one or the other. Yes. you got to have money to buy clothes or clothes yeah. to change into when needed. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, police are suggesting, well, maybe she just ran off of her own volition. Maybe not to Boston, but mm. to somewhere else. And her parents obviously didn't believe either one of those options for a second. Likely one of the only solid leads was when a neighbor to the Moltons, an ex-neighbor, I should say, passed along a potential sighting of Kathy. Okay. She went missing, remember, September 24th, 1971. Mm -hmm. Okay. On October 20th, nineteen seventy, So nearly a month. Mm-hmm, nearly a month after Kathy went missing, her parents heard that Sarah Anderson, a woman who used to live in the same neighborhood as the Moltons, but had since moved to Bangor, Maine, had seen Kathy in the mall there, but she had seen her weeks prior. It's just not okay, until so October we're just gonna 20th. Wait that they're hearing about it. So Kathy used to clean Sarah's house before she and her husband had moved. And so she knew Kathy well. Yeah. So it would be easy for her to pick Kathy out of a crowd. Exactly. And Anderson reported seeing Kathy there with two men. Hmm. But that lead led to no further investigation or information. Oh, they didn't even look into it? Well, so the parents are hearing about it but again they're hearing about it weeks after it happened and of course right, sarah and anderson just didn't right and sarah anderson at the time you know you could have been traveling on a school trip or 
You know what I mean? Something mm-hmm. else. Yeah. And she just didn't get over to say anything to her, even though she sees that it's Kathy. Because from what I read, they didn't have any verbal interaction. She just saw gotcha. Kathy. So then around Thanksgiving of 1971, so another month goes by, the Moulton family heard about a girl who looked like Kathy who had been living in Presque Isle. So Kathy's dad, Lyman, again, closes the car lot and drives north with his wife, Claire, looking for Kathy. So, I mean, it's the parents who are following up on these leads. Which when is they, sad. I mean, oh, we would do that too, I know. Right, but like, right. it's not, it's law enforcement's job, yeah. literally. Mm-hmm. When they got there, they were talking about Kathy to local law enforcement. And they showed her picture to them. It was an image that they had never seen. Oh, so did the police not forward that image around then? Her picture had been sent out of, like, to state agencies, uh, but not to local law enforcement agencies. Gotcha. So the Moltons, once they've realized this, they actually go door to door in Presque Isle, passing out photo flyers because of this report of a girl looking like their Kathy. And eventually the girl reported to potentially be Kathy was located, but it was not Kathy Moulton. Instead, it Mm -hmm. was a girl who had disappeared from Connecticut and at least she was taken home. But then here's the Moultons still looking for their little girl. And at At the time, there were also further rumors of a young girl who looked like Kathy taken to a reservation in Canada, but that didn't pan out either, those rumors. So the Moultons eventually just came back home to Portland. And, you know, I think for them, that would be so emotionally draining. You know, Mm -hmm. you're finding out these law enforcement have never seen pictures of your kid Mm -hmm. and then you find you think you find your kid but it's not yours it's somebody else's which is you know a happy ending for that family but right. you're wanting your happy ending right and you're putting in the effort right and in essence maggie that's where the case sat from th- around thanksgiving of 1971 so a couple months after kathy's disappearance until november 12th 1995 wow mhm when Detective Sergeant Thomas Joyce actually dropped Kathy Moulton's file onto Detective Kevin Cady's desk. And rem- you'll recognize his name as the one who wrote right. the book. The book. Yes. This particular cold case file, Maggie, was so slim that Katie actually asked Joyce where the rest of the file was. Because inside was only a one-page typed missing persons report from September 25th, 1971, so the day after Kathy Moulton disappeared, and a supplemental report by a detective, William Dietjohn, from January 15th, 1988, and that was all. So there's there's literally maybe two or three pieces of paper in this folder. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. That report that was in there from 1988, just so you know all the information that Katie had going in, 
it actually related to remains that had been located on the west coast of Canada that for some reason they believed could potentially have been Kathy's. And between 1971 and 1988, there had actually been no connections or leads on Kathy's case, which is why there weren't any other slips of paper in there. Leads were so scarce, in fact, that Detective G. D. John, according to Katie's book, said, quote, we were hopeful the lead from Canada might pan out because otherwise we had nothing, end quote. That's so sad to me. Mm-hmm. So in 1988, detectives did go to the Moulton family. This is the first time they apologized for the lack of investigation when Kathy had disappeared. And they requested that the family trust them now to do their due diligence. And they actually asked for access to dental records so that they could compare them with those remains that were found in Canada. And of course, the family gladly granted them access Mm -hmm. to the dental records. And Kathy's dentation, it actually was somewhat identifiable because she had had her eye teeth or her canines removed when she Hmm. got braces. Interesting. So it was something, you know, not the typical dentation that you would see but those remains were not of kathy moulton you know and i know these officers are saying trust us we're gonna do our best we're gonna you know find you answers or whatever but i'm sure they were so frustrated because if that had been the initial attitude oh i know we could have a potentially different ending now a completely different story a completely Mm -hmm. different story And that was the extent of the information that Katie had to go on when the case was reopened in 1995. Wow. Yeah. So, of course, knowing the proper process of any strong investigation, Katie started with those who knew Kathy Moulton best. He contacted her best friend at the time, Nancy Barlow. And when he contacted her, he found that it was the first time Law enforcement had spoken to Barlow. And that is where the twisted trail began to emerge. And, you know, so many people, first of all, we've talked about that your memory is not reliable anyways. Right. But given the amount of time, Uh I would think memory would be even more unreliable at this point. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Unless, you know, obviously if this is your best friend and your best friend goes missing, you've got your theories, Mm. and maybe those stick with you. Yeah, true. Right? But at least now, and you will see, I mean, it starts with Barlow, and then we get one piece of information, and it's going to lead to another piece of information, and another, and another, and another, and another. And that's why I agreed with you when you said, if this had been the mentality of law enforcement back in 1971, we would have a we wouldn't be talking about this case. But we'd be singing a different tune. Mm-hmm. So while Kathy was nothing of an extreme wild child sort at 16, she was beginning, according to her best friend, to rebel in small ways. I think all teenagers kind of go through something, whether it's, you know, 
coming in after curfew or something like that. So Kathy had taken to smoking the occasional cigarette. She was also potentially seeing an older boy named Lester Everett, who was 22. Oh. So that is, she's 16. So that's a significant age difference Mm -hmm. when you're 16. And she was potentially sexually active, though we don't know whether that claim is true or not. Okay. Um, Barlow also told Katie of another local man, Chris Church, who was a photographer, who had seemed interested in Kathy around April or May of 71. So not long before the family had taken their cross-country trip. And she told Katie that this guy, Church, the photographer, had actually asked Kathy to come to his place for a photo shoot. And she, yeah, she had gone. That sounds very Jeffrey Dahmer to me. Yeah. But now, because he's spoken to Barlow, Katie has two names of people to contact next. She, he has Church, the photographer, who he who was actually brought in for questioning in 1995 to ask about that photo session with an underage girl. Right. And during his interrogation, he seemed to be forthcoming. He admitted that he had propositioned Kathy for a photo shoot and that she had come to his place. He also claimed that he did try to kiss her but that she stayed clothed throughout the session. And he even still had photos from that session that he could provide to law enforcement. So those photos were provided and they did show a clothed Kathy Moulton. Okay. So not as Jeffrey Dahmer as what I was thinking. Right. Right. So since that lead, you know, didn't, seemed to go anywhere else after that photo session. Katie now had the other lead, Lester Everett, the 22-year-old who Barlow says may have been dating Kathy. This lead, sadly, proved impossible to follow up on since Everett had died from cancer nearly 10 years earlier. What Katie did uncover about Everett, though, was a long list of criminal activity, including being a suspect in a vehicle theft in Falmouth, Maine in 1971, the blue 1963 four-door Cadillac. And do you remember what car? Was this was not what we saw she she went into yeah. on the one sliding. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Had belonged to Mrs. Davis, and Mrs. Davis had actually let Lester Everett borrow the car just a few days earlier, and now the car is missing. Okay. Mm-hmm. So he's a suspect in this car theft. And unfortunately for Mrs. Davis, she didn't just lose the car because she also kept her credit card inside the car. That's a very Maggie move, but, you know. 
And law enforcement were able to trace charges. This was in a separate file because this car theft is a separate crime, right? Mm. Sadly, law enforcement, well, I guess luckily now, but sadly, law enforcement had actually put more effort into this investigation than into Kathy Moulton's mm. disappearance. But at the time, they were able to trace charges on the card to a Dorsey's garage in Fort Fairfield, which is in northern Maine, like right only a couple miles away from the Canadian border, where the card was used to buy gas and four tires. So we could be connecting to this reservation theory. Yes, potentially. Hmm. So since the theft of the car was also right around the time of Kathy's disappearance, you've got that statement of potentially seeing Kathy get into a blue Cadillac. Katie decided, well, now's the time to find and interview any and all workers from Dorsey's garage who might have, yeah, recalled seeing that stolen car, you know, if they have a memory of it, because again, they're involved in some sort of criminal investigation Mm -hmm. and ask if if they remember seeing a young girl with the man who potentially had stolen the car, who we have now learned could have been our boyfriend. So Katie is a good detective because he was able to locate just the man. Law enforcement found and interviewed an employee of Dorsey's garage named Don Logan. And because of the strangeness of what he saw with the stolen vehicle, he was able to recall exactly who had been there when those tires were purchased, even though more than two decades had passed. And you know what's crazy is we know... I'm assuming whatever he's getting ready to tell you we or tell the investigator, we know that's going to be true because there was so little media coverage mm-hmm. on Kathy's case. He wouldn't be able to make up what she looked like or right. you know anything like that because mm-hmm. no one knew. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so this guy, this worker, Don Logan, remembered that there were three people in the car. There was a young girl and two men one young Caucasian male, and one young Native American male. The Native, and this is, you know, I said the strangeness of the situation is why I mm-hmm. recalled it. The Native American male had walked Kathy, or a girl who looked like Kathy, to the bathroom and back from the bathroom to the vehicle with his hand on the back of her neck the entire time, almost as though he was guiding her, like a threat not to take any actions that weren't approved by him. You know, I don't know what I would do. What would you do in that situation? I think I would still throw a fit. Like scream? Yeah, you're in public. I know. I think I would, but then, you know, you don't know what threats they've made or whatever. That's true. And so the young white male had actually been the one driving the car. And the employee remembered being worried at the time that the girl had been kidnapped, even though he hadn't reported it. And I think a lot of us do things like that. Mm-hmm. You know, you look at a situation and you think it's off in some way. Right. But you just don't 
do anything about it right like oh i shouldn't get involved what if i'm reading this wrong those sorts of things and the reason i said kathy's name earlier is because when this worker was shown a variety of pictures he picked out kathy as the girl and he picked out lester everett the 22 year old as the white male well but who now was this third person the native american man pulling up to mickey d's just for drinks oh yeah that's me nothing extra just perfection and a straw coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block because there are drinks then there are drinks from mcdonald's Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. My daughter and I love smoothies, but what we don't love are smoothie bar prices. With our Blendjet 2 portable blender, we can make smoothie bar quality drinks for a fraction of the price. Blendjet 2 is portable, so you can blend up a smoothie at work, a protein shake at the gym, or even a margarita on the beach. And it's small enough to fit in a cup holder, but powerful enough to blast through those tough ingredients like ice and frozen fruit with ease. Even better, Blendjet 2 is whisper quiet, so you can make your morning smoothie without waking up the whole house. Plus, it lasts for 15 plus blends and recharges quickly via a USB-C. You guys have heard me say it before, and I'll say it again. Best of all, the Blendjet 2 cleans itself. Just blend water with a drop of soap and you're good to go. Plus, they have so many trendy colors to choose from. The hardest decision will be which design you want to rock. We would also like to introduce you to the Orbiter Drinking Lid. The Orbiter Drinking Lid balances a leak-proof design with one-hand-use convenience and a modern minimalist design. The Orbiter Drinking Lid is so easy to use, you only need one hand. Blendjet's patent-pending design allows you to open and drink by simply rotating the lid with your thumb. Just when we thought the Blendjet 2 couldn't get any better, it did. 
Now you can blend anywhere without spilling everywhere. So what are you waiting for? Go to blendjet.com and grab yours today. And be sure to use the promo code Coffee and Cases Blend 12 to get 12% off your order and free two-day shipping. No other portable blender on the market comes close to the quality, power, and innovation of the Blendjet 2. They guarantee you'll love it or your money back. Blend anytime, anywhere with the Blendjet 2 Portable Blender. Go to blendjet.com and use the code COFFEEINCASESBLEND12 to get 12% off your order and free two-day shipping. Shop today and get the best deal ever. So when they're hearing about this third person, this young Native American male, Katie recalled a note in Kathy's file that a Detective Green had interviewed, and he had interviewed, I'm going to use what he wrote in the file, quote, the Indian boy, end quote, with no name mentioned. Okay, well, tells me all I need to know about that guy, the yeah, detective. I know, is, uh, yeah. So there was a note in Kathy's file that said that, that this Detective Green had interviewed a young Native American male at Tobique Point in 1971 after a potential sighting of Kathy. So that goes back to that one that her parents heard about, right, on a reservation. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, Tobique Point is only a handful of miles into Canada from Fort Fairfield and Dorsey's Garage. Yeah, so we got lots of arrows pointing to this theory. Yes. When the young man was interviewed, he had told Detective Green that the girl with him wasn't Kathy, a statement that the detective had taken as truth and let him go. I feel like that was probably the extent of their conversation. It was. Was that Kathy? No. Oh, okay, bye. Oh, right. Okay, thank you. Further, the Tobique police chief from 1971 and 1972 was also shown pictures of Kathy and of Everett, the boyfriend, which he just brushed off at the time. And that effectively had ended the lead that had gone from Fort Fairfield in Dorsey's Garage to Tobique Point to Maliseet First Nation and New Brunswick, Canada. That was just the trail that Katie was now ready to reopen. And it makes me so sad because now I'm thinking, remember all those years earlier when Kathy's parents had gone north looking for their daughter? Oh, so they had been really close and didn't even know it. Mm -hmm. They could have only been minutes away. From where she had been potentially. Mm -hmm. So it was time to re-question that police chief. The one who had just mm -hmm. brushed off Kathy and Everett at the time. When the ex-police chief was shown the images again. This time in 1996. It seemed his memory had changed. Okay. Mm -hmm. When he was shown the first image of Lester Everett. He correctly replied, quote, that looks like Lester. Oh, so not only do we recognize him, we he also know his name. name. Yeah. Before further admitting that they used to party together in the early 70s when Everett had come to the reservation. Okay, so then a reason why he would, you know, brush off those pictures and dismiss right. them before. Mm -hmm. When shown a picture of Kathy... 
the sheriff, according to Katie's book, identified her as the young girl who he thinks ran away from home, who had come into Canada from the main side with Lester Everett and Reed Purley. Oh, do we have the name of the we other guy? We now, now have the name. Yes. This ex-police chief said that he believed that the girl was Reed Purley's girlfriend. Okay. And when asked if he could recall her name, this name of the girl who he saw, he said he thinks she went by Candy. Okay. He believes that she was from Portland and that she stayed with Reed's parents, Rita and Maurice Purley. Oh, my gosh. Yes. And then right before he clammed up and refused to say anything else... Katie reports that he dropped a bombshell. He said that something bad happened to that girl on Tobique. Oh, he had he had word vomit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then all of a sudden is like, oh, crap, shouldn't have said that and clams up too much. Yeah. So the same one who kind of brushes off the photos before now has recognized Lester Everett has said Oh, yeah, this girl, I think she went by Candy, but she was from Portland, and she came over with Everett and this other guy, Reed Pearlie. So with all of these details, the detectives knew in their guts that this Candy was actually Kathy Moulton, Mm -hmm. right? Because they're both gone from home, from Portland, with Lester Everett and a Native American male. So just like that sighting of Kathy by Sarah Anderson in Bangor, Maine with two men, just like the sighting of an identified Kathy and Lester and a Native American male by the Dorsey garage worker, right? So what are are the odds, right, that this wouldn't be Kathy? And now we're wondering, well, what happened? Exactly. Yeah. What happened on Tobique to Kathy and in what way might Everett and or the now-named Native American man, Reed Pearlie, how might they have been involved? So, while they didn't have an answer to that question, according to Katie in his book, police now had a working theory. So, Katie believes that on September 24th, 1971, after leaving Starboard Music to walk home, that Lester had pulled up in that stolen Cadillac to the side of Forest Avenue near Portland Street. Katie speculates that Everett said to Kathy that they were going somewhere and to get in, right? He then speculates that it's then when Kathy meets Reed Purley. And remember, Lester Everett, he's the older man that Kathy is smitten with. So, of course, she would probably do whatever he told her to do. If he said, go ahead and get in, Mm -hmm. she's probably going to get in. Katie believes that Lester had agreed to drive hitchhiker Reed Purley to his home in New Brunswick, Canada. And Katie also believes that Kathy, in getting to the car, into that car with Everett, probably didn't know that she was about to head out of the country, right? And that's probably why, you know, that news that Reed Purley had potentially been guiding her by the neck so she wouldn't try to run from them. Right, because she could have got in under the pretense, oh, I'll give you a ride home. Exactly. Yeah, and then all of a sudden he starts heading towards Canada. 
I'd be like, um, while I love Canada, right? I do not live here. I want to go home. Yes. Yeah. So now armed with a name, Katie actually located Pearlie, who in 1996 was awaiting trial in Canada for a home invasion and sexual assault. Oh. And since he was awaiting trial, Katie knew that investigators would, you know, they could work closely with RCMP since Pearlie had to report daily to Canadian law enforcement. So in a strong connected effort, RCMP agreed to work with Maine law enforcement to show Pearlie a picture of Kathy to gauge his reaction. Well, now I'm anxious to know what he says. Okay. According to Katie's book, that discussion with Pearlie resulted in mixed information. So Katie wrote that Reed, he stated a recognition of Lester Everett by name. And, but he kind of denied that they really knew one another. More that, okay, yeah, he gave me a ride once. Yeah, that name sounds familiar. Gave me a ride from Maine to Tobique. But he never said that he had seen this girl named Kathy. So he's basically saying, okay, yeah, he gave me a ride once, but there wasn't a girl with us. But how... I mean, maybe his memory is better than mine, but if I meet someone one time, it's a very slim possibility that I'm going to actually remember your name mm -hmm. hours later, let alone years later. So I don't know how much I buy this story from him. Yeah. Well, and so on the surface, it seemed like Pearlie was a dead end, but then he made this weird statement that caused law enforcement to be unwilling to let him go as a potential link to Kathy. So again, according to Katie, Pearlie said, quote, you mean she never made it home? Her parents haven't seen her since then? Okay, End but quote. how do you know she was missing if you don't know who she is? Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly what Detective Katie questioned. He said, okay, you can't in one and the same instance say that you've never seen this girl and have no idea who she is and yet miraculously know that she didn't make it home. Right. That's very specific. Mm -hmm. And also, if he wasn't connected at all, why had his name been connected with the description who of a of a girl who sounded just like Kathy, who had even potentially stayed with his parents, according to the ex-police chief. Were his right? parents like, dead? No. At this point. Oh, mm -hmm. I, I don't know if they were in the 90s. I'm not sure. I'm unsure about that. So the problem, though, was that, you know, even when offered immunity from... Because remember, he is... Pearly is awaiting trial in Canada yeah. for the home invasion. For some and, bad things. Yes. And sexual assault. Even when he was offered immunity from prosecution, if he provided information about Kathy Moulton, he refused to have any knowledge or acknowledge that he had any knowledge of her. Okay. That's weird because I feel like most criminals wouldn't do that. Also very frustrating because we right. need to know. I know. So further drawing suspicion on Pearlie, though, 
was another crime for which Pearlie was a suspect, the murder of Judy Campbell in 1973. When the lead Mm. detective in Campbell's case saw a photo of Kathy Moulton, Katie wrote in his book that the lead detective's jaw dropped. Katie said they look alike or something. Well, Katie said that Judy and Kathy could not just have passed as sisters, but would have passed as identical twins. Oh, wow. So they Mm -hmm. were doppelgangers. Mm -hmm. And in Judy Campbell's case, Pearlie had come, kind of come on to her in a bar and she had turned him down. And he then followed her out when she paid her tab and had left the bar. And that was when, well, again, he's a suspect in that crime that he had potentially murdered her. So police began to wonder, you know, if Pearlie were responsible for Campbell's death, maybe that wasn't his first murder. Yeah, and the crimes that he was being held for at this time are very serious crimes. So, Mm -hmm. like, rape Mm -hmm. and murder, I would Mm -hmm. categorize those together. So it's not like Mm -hmm. he would have made a huge jump. Right, right. So in the meantime... Katie spent his time, Detective Katie, when he wasn't continuing to work on his normal workload, which he still had to do while investigating the Moulton case. When he was in his spare time looking into the Moulton case, he examined more than 200 unidentified female cases from across the United States and Canada that spanned from 1971 until 1996. And he was able to rule out Kathy Moulton in every single one of those. Mm. A lot of overtime hours. I know. With what seemed no other course of action, the investigative team turned to the reservation for answers. On the reservation, however, they met with roadblock after roadblock because no one would go on record to give any information. And even with anonymity, only small bits of information were given, but they did get one other name to look into, Millie Augustine. This is just like curve after curve right curve in this case yeah it's like you get one piece of information and it leads to one other little tidbit and then you follow it and you can get to one other one and it's that's why i said this twisty turny trail Mm -hmm. so again thankfully law enforcement have so much more dedication to kathy moulton's case when you know it's reopened in the 90s and they were also able to locate augustine Oh, good. Yes. And law enforcement were again able to verify that Kathy had been with Lester Everett after going missing in Portland. So we at least know that she's with, because remember, all those reports put Kathy, Everett, and now this Reed Purley in the same vehicle, right? Millie Augustine says, yes, I knew Lester Everett. And I saw him with Kathy because I met Kathy. Oh, 
She even showed detectives a picture that was taken in Fernandina Beach, Florida, that was of herself, her sister Donna Augustine, a man named Emmett Peters, and Lester Everett. Though Millie said that Lester, at this point, had taken to calling himself David Everett. So he decided to go by a different name. A different name. Yes. And those were the people in this picture. Prior to the image being taken, several months earlier, in fact, Millie had spent a week or so with both Lester and Kathy in late September into October 1971. So remember, she goes missing. So like right when she goes missing? Mm Mm-hmm. And that they were working on McBride's farm in Mara Hill, Maine, during the potato harvest that year. And this here's, is also weird. I know. Here's what she remembers. So Emma Peters, the other guy from the picture, and Millie's sister Donna, they also worked on this potato farm, as did Millie and Donna's father. And while Millie did not recall... Pearlie being on the farm, so the Native American man being there, she and Emmett Peters, who was later interviewed as well, said that there was a girl from Portland with Everett who Peters says he thinks was named Kathy. I'm so frustrated with this case right mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. And Peters said, though, that Everett left one night with the girl and came back the next day without Kathy. Millie Augustine said she always assumed that Kathy had gone home because when she would talk with Kathy, Kathy always talked about wanting to go home or to contact her parents. So I'm guessing if they're working here on the potato farm, she has no access to a phone. Yeah, and okay, you know, that's what I was about to ask because... I feel like at this point, if she's talking to people other than Lester and other than Reed, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. then she would have the ability to be like, I don't want to be here. I'm here against my will. Please help me, you know, call home. Right. And again, we don't know what, if any threats there were or what was going on but she did tell millie often that yeah she wanted to go home or she wanted to contact her parents millie said that kathy rarely left the cadillac that in fact millie's father would bring dinner to the car so that kathy would at least eat and that kathy acted like she didn't trust everett and that she was leery of the native american workers on the farm But the other guy from the picture, the Emmett Peters guy, he also said that he didn't remember Reed Purley working on the farm. He said that he remembers that Everett did say something about taking Kathy to another farm and leaving her there because he was tired of her whining. And this just, well, okay. A couple things. Yes. One, I feel like this story is so, like, weird that it almost has to be true, you know? Mm-hmm. So specific. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I don't understand. What I don't understand 
is how Kathy really fits into this. Like, what is the purpose? I know. Of kidnapping her and taking her to a potato farm. Right. Yeah. I. One theory that I read is that after Everett took Pearly back to the reservation, that they stayed there a couple of days and that then he ended up working on this potato farm so he could like work for gas money for them to continue going who knows where i don't i don't know but i will say that law enforcement's proposed theory did now expand to include the suspicion that everett had taken pearly to the reservation in canada likely crossing in an area where they could kind of take back roads and avoid customs before taking kathy to this potato farm that they remained so there, questions. I know, for several days before sometime after dinner on or around the end of September, beginning of October, Everett got into the car with Kathy only to drive her, this is law enforcement's now working theory, back across the border, taking the same route as before to avoid customs detection, and that he had left her on the reservation with Pearly because remember we get the ex-police chief saying that she lived with Pearly's parents Mm, yeah okay so got that dot connected right and so the reason they're thinking the reservation is part of this believed trail for Kathy Moulton is also based on the fact of the reaction of all the people who are on the reservation when they were spoken to concerning the case Right. Because they're thinking like, why, why else would they, there be this much hesitancy to talk at all? Otherwise you would just say, no, I don't, I've never seen her. I do feel like they would probably have a deep distrust of. Yes, that is true. That is true. And, and I have to say again, at this point, all of this information is just speculation. Right. I mean, it could be the case that Pearly was dropped off by Everett, who then left with Kathy and Pearly never saw them again. Right. I mean, that could be the case. There were a couple of details that for law enforcement like Katie make the likelihood, though, that Pearly knew nothing about Kathy seem highly unlikely. And here's what they're thinking. There had been multiple corroborated statements that would place Everett Pearlie and Kathy Moulton together. Mm-hmm. Right. So if Pearlie were a hitchhiker, it might be the case that he only recognized Everett by name. If that ex-police chief hadn't also said that he knew Everett because he had spent time on the reservation. Oh, that's true. I hadn't really connected that dot because yeah. how are we explaining that away? Right. And that the ex-police chief added that the girl who was with them was was actually Pearlie's girlfriend and not Everett's girlfriend. And that's obviously, if she's your girlfriend, someone whose name you would definitely know. Exactly. And then, of course, again, the lead that Kathy had stayed with Pearlie's parents. Additionally, law enforcement learned that Everett, around the time of Kathy Moulton's disappearance, had spent time with two men, John Wayne Aceto and Tony Taroni. Aceto was brought in for an interview in the 90s, because again, 
here's Katie. They're finally putting the effort in that they should have into Kathy Moulton's case. And this Aceto guy says that he knew Kathy and that Everett had told him that Kathy had discovered she was pregnant with Everett's child oh. right before leaving Portland. That Everett didn't know positively, but he at least suspected it. So are we saying then that Kathy left on her own accord because she's pregnant or that Everett wants to air quotes deal with it yeah deal with the problem and he takes her i don't know if we have an answer to that question Hmm. yeah so and that's why i think there's the suspicion that she could have been sexually active at the time but we don't know i don't think she would even if she were pregnant i don't think she would have left on her own i don't think so either but here's the other interesting thing that makes law enforcement still question Pearlie. And it is that in 1973, Everett actually came back to Portland from Florida and asked this Aceto to go to Canada with him to find out what happened to Kathy. So if that story's true, then it does make it sound like Everett did drive Kathy into Canada to this reservation and just kind of leave her there. And just left her? Right. And according to Aceto, when he and Everett got to the reservation, because he says they went there, they actually went to Canada to see what happened to Kathy, and that when they got to the reservation, that Everett was attacked by a man named Ivan and by the Pearly Boys, and they told him that if he ever came back, they would kill him. Katie mentions all this in his book. So Katie, and I agree, now questioned, okay, if Everett and Pearlie used to be friendly, what changed? Yeah, why are we wanting to kill Lester right. Everett now? Yeah, what did he do? So Katie felt like it was time to get to the bottom of all the rumors. He actually called Pearlie's sister, Jacqueline, who told him that a girl from Portland named Candy, and remember the ex-police chief was like, I think she went by the name Candy. So maybe right? they changed her name when she got up there. Maybe. Just so, like how Les or Everett mm-hmm. changed his name. To David, yeah. So Jacqueline tells him, well, there was a girl from Portland. Her name was Candy, and she came to my home. This is what Jacqueline is saying. On Tobique Point Reservation with Reed and stayed in 1971, sometime between Halloween and Thanksgiving of that year. Well, that fits Again, with the so timeline. frustrating. Yeah. Right. Yep. And remember, Kathy's parents were up there right around Thanksgiving. Yep. So Jacqueline said that the last she heard, though, was that Candy was seen with a neighbor named Ivan. Remember, Ivan was one of the ones who beat up Everett. Mm -hmm. During a snowstorm that year, she heard that Candy was seen running from Ivan's house nude into the blizzard. And Candy was never seen again. I mean, my jaw just dropped. Mm -hmm. She went on and told 
this Detective Katie, that Ivan had died in the late 80s, but that he had a reputation as, quote, Ivan the Rapist, end quote. Okay, and how did she get with Ivan? How did she? We don't know. He was a neighbor to the Pearlies. Okay. But I don't, I have no idea. So many questions. I know. And Katie did do some research and he was able to verify that there was a blizzard that hit the area the day before Thanksgiving in 1971 that lasted into Thanksgiving morning and dumped 28 and a half inches of snow in the main New Brunswick area. So that is, I mean, it's fitting with the story he's being told, right? Of her hearing that Candy was seen running from Ivan's house nude into the blizzard sometime around Thanksgiving. And like I said, with the previous story that we were told, these are so oddly specific. I almost Mm -hmm. feel like they have to be true. Mm -hmm. But again, we get to the problem that without solid evidence, without accounts of what happened from those who recall it and details, what we have, even if it may be true, has to be labeled as nothing more than rumor and speculation without something to back it up. So let's review our theories. Okay, so there's theory number one, Kathy left of her own volition. Those who believe this theory Mm -hmm. either say that she was never with Everett to begin with and that she likely went to Boston because she seemed interested in it or... That after Everett left with her that night from the potato farm, that Kathy went her own way, you know, maybe never returning home. Mm-hmm. There are even those. Yeah, who, but, okay, yeah. a couple things here. Okay. When I was 16, I'm sure I was probably like, New York is a really interesting place. Maybe one day I'll visit New York City. That doesn't mean... I'm going to run away to New York City. Right. That just meant that I thought that was an interesting town and I would like to visit there one day. Right. So perhaps it was the same with Kathy. Why are we automatically assuming she's running away to Boston? I know. That just don't make sense. I know. And there were And even... if she's telling people at this potato farm yeah. that she wants to go home and wants to contact her parents, yeah. if she had the opportunity to do that why when he she? leaves her, right? why wouldn't she? Mm-hmm. You're exactly right. Sadly, there are even those who argue, including a psychic and one detective's quote-unquote gut reaction, that they believe that Kathy did return home and that her father was involved in her death. I guess they're thinking if he was angry because she was pregnant or something like that. But I will say that her father was never named a suspect, right? And he was active and visible in seeking justice for Kathy throughout. I mean, from the beginning. He's the entire reason we have a missing persons report. Yeah. Cause he, he wouldn't demanded leave the police it. station. Exactly. And I don't see 
him being mad enough to murder her just because she's pregnant. Uh, Listen, if she's been missing and he's that adamant about finding her, when you find her, you're not going to be like, oh, never mind. I'm not excited to see my child again because she's done something, you know, that I didn't approve of. That is not how it works. Right. Theory number two is that Everett had something to do with Kathy's death. So if he were sick of her whining, if he believed her to be pregnant, might he have harmed her and left her in the woods somewhere? I mean, he is the one who's seen to leave the potato farm with her and come back alone. Mm. Right? And maybe he even took her somewhere near the Tobique First Nation reservation. The problem with this argument then is why would he go back to the reservation with Aceto to quote-unquote see what happened to Kathy? Well, there I'm wondering if he left her, you know, so part of that other theory, he just Mm -hmm. left her. And then now, all these years later, he's ridden with this guilt, you know, oh my God, I left her all by herself. I wonder if she's okay. And so he wants to go back and check on her. Mm -hmm. But... I just, I didn't get good vibes from him. So I don't know if I'm really believing the, oh, I really just want to go back and check on her story. Right. I know. And then theory number three is that something happened on the reservation that led to Kathy's death. So Detective Katie does seem to believe in this theory the most strongly. He recalls when he was speaking with Jacqueline that he overheard another of their sisters yell in the background not to talk to the cops, which again could just be because of a fear, Mm. right, of that relationship between those on the reservation and Canadian law enforcement. But Katie also states in his book that reward posters were put up with Kathy's picture and that within just a few hours, that same sister who was yelling in the background had torn them all down. So his belief Hmm. seems to be that that level of hostility has to be driven by something. Yeah. That's more than just mistrust, you know, Mm -hmm. there are other rumors that link Kathy Moulton to the reservation, including a rumor that her body was buried in the basement of Ivan's house, a house that has since been raised and a new house built on it, a house occupied by the same sister who tore down the posters. Oh, yeah. So we're never going to know if that's true or not. Right. So that's information that I got from Katie's book. Yet another rumor involved an overheard story that Pearlie had told someone he had buried a girl from Maine in the woods. Another person, according to Detective Katie, said that in the fall of 1971, they had seen Pearlie dragging a screaming woman into the woods. But again, we don't, are these rumors because of stories that we've heard or are these true accounts? And neighbors to Pearlie, and again, this is according to Katie's book, recounted that around that time in 71, their dog had brought a human skull home, but that they didn't think anything of it because they assumed it belonged to a long since dead person from the reservation who had been buried on tribal land. 
Okay, still though. I know. I think even if that's the case, we probably want to return it where it's supposed to be. Probably so. But again, right now, these are all rumors. Unproven claims until and unless someone with intimate knowledge is willing to provide information that can confirm these claims. Law enforcement hasn't had enough evidence to file charges or even to get warrants to search Hurley's residence. So that's my devil's advocate to that theory. So Maggie, what are your thoughts? And Pearlie is the one, or was it another guy that's reporting to police because of the home invasion? Yes, sexual that assault is charges? him. Yep, that's him. I feel that it has to, I think a lot of things do revolve around the reservation. Mm-hmm. I just don't know what party is responsible. Mm-hmm. And I wonder why we want to keep Everett away. Is it because they think that he would contact investigators if he found out what really happened? Like, is it that? Is right. that the reason we want to keep him away? Or is it because he was involved as well? I don't know who was involved. Mm-hmm. I just I know, have lots of questions. You're right. Because, it, it, I mean, it could even, because we don't have any answers, it could even be the case that let's say Kathy were Pearlie's girlfriend and not Everett's girlfriend and Everett did do something with her and didn't go back to the reservation to see what happened, but went back to kind of gloat about it or something. And that's why they, I mean, we, we don't know. Maybe they loved, maybe they loved Kathy on the reservation right? and Everett did hurt her. Yeah. And they're like, yeah, if you come back here again, we're going to kill you. You're right. I mean, it could be so many different possibilities. Mm Mm-hmm. And until we have those answers, we just don't know. According to an article in the Portland Press Herald by Jillian Graham and published on September 19th, 2021, Kathy's sister Kimberly turned 16 three and a half years after Kathy disappeared. According to that article, quote, she was keenly aware that her parents felt panicked when their middle daughter reached the age Kathy had been when she disappeared. She avoided going to the YWCA dances Kathy loved and for years was convinced she would never have children because she could not fathom living through a loss like the one her parents endured. Quote, part of my persona was to protect myself from danger and to protect myself from the agony that they went through every time I walked out the door, she said, end quote. An article in Portland Monthly by Grantland Rice further stated that after Kathy's disappearance, the schedule for the whole family changed so that someone would always be home, just in case Kathy came back, and they left her room just as it was. But even though they lived with that fear, they also lived with hope. Kathy's father said to Bill Nemitz of the Portland Press-Herald, quote, It's human nature to hope. That's what love is. It's hope, end quote. In that same article, he rightly argued, quote, a person is an important thing. You are, I am, and Kathy is. If the government wanted to, they'd turn hell and high water over to locate somebody. Just try not paying your taxes. But when it comes to missing persons, the doors are closed. 
we just want to know what happened to our daughter, end quote. And he's right. Love is hope. Love is visibility. Love is sharing. Love is passion. Love is taking action. And love is recognition. Let's recognize Kathy Moulton by sharing her case this week. Again, please like and join our Facebook page, Coffee and Cases Podcast, to continue the conversation and see images related to this episode. As always, follow us on Twitter at Cases Coffee, on Instagram at Coffee Cases Podcast, or you can always email us suggestions to coffeeandcasespodcast at gmail.com. Please tell your friends about our podcast so more people can be reached to possibly help bring some closure to these families. Don't forget to rate our show and leave us a comment as well. We hope to hear from you soon. Stay together. Stay safe. We'll We'll see see you you next next week. Love knows with Maggie and Allison. Whoop whoop. And we actually have a lot of names this yes. week. And you guys know I'm not very good with name pronunciation. So if I mispronounce your name, just know I didn't mean to and I love ya. <laughs> but we have love going out to Phil, Tracy, Carrie, Holly, another Carrie, Carrie with an I, and Carrie with Oh, I. Nancy, Chrissia, Michelle, BJ, Jackie, Angelina, Melissa, Marsha, Cody, Nina, Kathy, Jennifer, Ben, Amy, Angie, Suzanne, Clara, Nadia, Vicky, Michael, Richie, Lynn, Brenda, and Krista yes. are reaching out or responding on social media to us. Yes. So many names. And we love a long list like that. Yes, we do. We love do. talking to you guys. Yes, we do. And for everybody listening, Reach out to us because we love it. And while we have your attention, we also wanted to let you know that we would love to see you over on our Patreon. Mm -hmm. So if you are interested in bonus content or in the upper tiers, quarterly swag boxes, just head on over to patreon.com forward slash coffee and cases to join. There is a link in the show notes. And don't forget our current prize giveaway, which is open to any and all who are already on Patreon to support our show. And those who join before we draw, we will be drawing for a coffee and cases mug on our June 29th episode, which is next week. So that doesn't leave you much time. So if you're interested in being part of like a chance to get that prize, then you need to be sure to sign up today before it's too late. That's right. And with that, all of our love is going out to each and every one of you. Until next week, sleuth hounds.